Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Some of you are wannabe parents. You have designs on becoming a parent someday. Many of us are already parents, sometimes grandparents. If you're ready for children or think you are preparing to be ready for children, there is a series of tests which are available to you. Let me just uh, read those to you. The first is the mess test. Smear peanut butter on the sofa and curtains. Now rub your hands in the wet flower bed and rub on the walls. Cover the stains with crayons. Place a fish stick behind the couch. Leave it there all summer. This will help you be ready. There's also a toy test. Obtain a 55-gallon box of Legos. If Legos are not available, you may substitute roofing nails or broken bottles. Have a friend spread them all over the house. Put on a blindfold and try to walk to the bathroom or kitchen. Do not scream, because this might wake a child at night. Just a test. There's the grocery store test. Borrow one or two small animals. Uh, goats are recommended. And take them with you as you shop at the grocery store. Always keep them in sight and pay for anything they eat or damage. It's just preps you, get you ready. Here's the dressing test. Obtain one large, unhappy, live octopus... Stuff them into a small net bag, making sure that all the arms stay inside. It's good practice. Here's the feeding test. Obtain a large plastic milk jug. Fill it halfway with water. Suspend from the ceiling with a stout cord. Start the jug swinging. Try to insert spoonfuls of soggy cereal, such as Fruit Loops or Cheerios, into the mouth of the jug while, the, while, while pretending to be an airplane. Now, now dump the contents when you're done out on the floor. This will prepare you. There is the night test. Prepare by obtaining a small cloth bag and fill it with 8 to 12 pounds of sand. Then soak it thoroughly with water. About 8 p.m., begin to waltz and hum with the bag until about 9 p.m. Lay down your bag and set your alarm for 10 p.m. Then get up, pick up your bag, and sing every song you've ever heard. Make up about a dozen more and sing these two until about 4 a.m. Set your alarm for 5 a.m. Get up and make breakfast. Keep this up for five years and look cheerful. Why you're doing it? The night test. Here's the physical test. Uh, this one's for the women. Obtain a large beanbag chair and attach it to the front of your clothes. Leave it there for nine months. Now remove ten of the beans. <laughs> Somehow it doesn't work out, does it? Here's the physical test for the men. Go to the nearest drugstore. Set your wallet on the counter. Ask the clerk to help himself. Now proceed to the nearest food store. Go to the head office and arrange for your paycheck to be directly deposited to the store. Purchase a newspaper, then go home and read it quietly for the last time. <laughs> Here's the final assignment. Find a couple who already has a small child. Lecture them on how they can improve their discipline, patience, tolerance, toilet training, and child's table manners. Suggest many ways they can improve. Emphasize to them that they should never allow their children to run riot. Enjoy this experience. It will be the last time you will have all the answers to parenting. <laughs> a series of tests. The old adage is that before you have children, you know a lot about parenting. As your children are young, you know just a little bit about parenting. As they get older, you know very little about parenting. And after they're raised, you don't know anything about parenting. And that's uh, not far off. That's pretty close. Today I want to uh, reference a very important verse of Scripture in Proverbs. And by the way, Proverbs, as you'll know, is wisdom literature. Most of it's from Solomon. And there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. And over the years, I have used Proverbs devotionally. And I simply correspond a proverb to the day of the week. So whatever day of the month it happens to be that number, I read that chapter in the book of Proverbs. There are 31, and you can go through Proverbs in a month, and you can gain wisdom. Today I want to read from, from Proverbs chapter 22, the first six verses there, and again, it is filled with the wisdom of God. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, we'll project these words on the screen, and as is our custom, I'll invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's word. Proverbs 22, verse 1, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Verse 4, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. 
Someone should pick that up as their life verse today. Proverbs 22, 4, great verse. Verse 5, in the paths of the wicked are snares and pitfalls, but those who would preserve their life stay far from them. Finally, verse 6, start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. And God inspires today through his word. You may be seated. The reason the family is so important is because every other institution is predicated on it. So if the family breaks up, then the things that depend on the family begin to be broken as well. And of course, the crisis in families in today's culture is staggering. There's no nice way to put it, no easy way to say it. There's no soft sell on this subject. Let me just say it this way. If you don't care about your family, you don't care about your future or the future of our society. There's a great temptation in our culture today to blame everything and everyone else for our particular problems. We like to think it's the school's fault or the corporation's fault or the neighborhood's fault or the government's fault. Let me just remind you something. It doesn't really matter ultimately what's happening in the White House so much as it matters what's happening in your house. If we will take care of our own house and get our own house in an orderly way, everything else will be benefited. Now the question is, what are we going to do to find out what it means to be a parent? I mean, we bring this little bundle home, uh, this, little, this little paperweight we bring home from the hospital, and there she is, there he is, and for the next 18 years or so, there's this molding and shaping and twisting and turning and fussing and sometimes cussing, all manner of trauma. Reality is that when your children leave home, there are systems in place in our world that are designed to attempt to dissuade your children from the values and virtues that you've tried to instill in them over the last 20 years or so. And it's TV and it's internet and it's Hollywood and it's their friends and it's professors and it's politicians, all of them trying to unravel what you've put inside of them. Now, you know, if you've been here any length of time at all, that I'm kind of an old-timey preacher. And one of the reasons that I'm old-timey is because, is because I, I'm a person who believes that the Bible's true. And it's reliable for what we believe. And it's reliable for how we practice. And, and I think in order to be a good parent, you're going to need your Bible. There, there are lots of things that have changed in our culture. Cultures change, values have changed, expectations have changed, practices have changed. But let me tell you two things that have not changed. Children have not changed. The intrinsic needs of a child are the same today as they were 50 years ago, 500 years ago, 5,000 years ago. A child still has the basic intrinsic needs that they've always had. And that has not changed. And another thing that's not changed is God has not changed. And God's word has not changed. And God's, God's best design for the development of a human being always starts with a family. That's his plan. And he has not changed. And so what does it mean then to be a parent? And wouldn't it be wise of us if we pushed aside the notions of culture that are contemporary and trendy and mobile with regard to parenting and that we might focus in on the two constants that we, that we know are there and steady, which are the needs of children and God's best design and plan. So today I want to just unpack 10 things, briefly 10 things that God and children might say to us as parents or those considering being a parent. Here's the first thing. Number one, you'll want to work on this on your outline. Uh, I put those fill in the blanks so you, you might stay awake. Number one, somebody must be there in the early years. It's critical for the development of a child. The early years. Here's uh, Paul Meyer from the Minrith Meyer Clinic Institute. He says this, quote, One of the things I've learned in my psychiatric training is that approximately 85% of a person's ultimate personality is formed by the time he or she is six years old. 85% of personality gets formed by the age of six. Now, those six years obviously are the most crucial for a child in his or her development. And yet, look at the world. Step, if, if we know that, we believe that, step back and, and just see reality. With all the research, with all the scientific study, where a child needs maximum attention, maximum around-the-clock love and attention and nurture, in the world of the 21st century, when a child needs that kind of attention, and we know it, 
And at the same time, we look at our world and see moms and dads increasingly giving their sons and daughters to someone else as they pursue careers and other interests. And it's a risky business. It's not, it's not a good idea. I, I, I found another piece of research. This comes from the Commission of Children at Risk from the Dartmouth Medical School. And this is what one of the things that they have discovered in their research. And I quote, a strong nurturing environment, a strong nurturing environment in the early years is crucial to properly completing the development of the brain circuitry in a child. What we know scientifically is that when a child is born, their brain isn't all the way hardwired. And so the circuitry in a human being's brain is still connecting even in the first few years of life. Now, here's the most astonishing part of this research. This hardwiring of the circuitry of the brain is more than mere biology. So you just, well, naturally, they're going to grow and develop, and the brain is going to connect, make connections. But what they've discovered is that the, while the biology is happening, a more important aspect of that brain development is relationship and nurture. So that to the degree that a child gets the kind of nurture that they need early in their life, their brain actually forms and the circuits connect in more effective ways. It's very interesting. Now that, that really shouldn't surprise anyone. I mean, it's almost like common sense that there would be cause and effect to these sorts of things, either where there's nurture or where there's neglect. But down the road, we see it and we experience we experience the consequences of human beings who come to adulthood and they simply cannot manage. And therefore, counselors and therapists and the hard realities of life are teaching these folks what it means. So here's what child psychiatrist Hugh Messelman says. He sums it up this way. For better or for worse, what happens to a child early in life lives on in them as adults forever. Yeah. And so there it is. Someone's going to have to be there in the early years. Number two, a balance of discipline, instruction, and love is needed growing up. A balance of discipline, instruction, and love. Let me give you the four basic styles of parenting. There is what we might describe as the neglectful style. This is, this is where uh, a child is growing up with very little love and very little discipline. They're not getting anything. It's neglectful. Then another is authoritarian. This is where there's very little love, but a lot of instruction, a lot of discipline. Authoritarian. That's a second style. A third style is what we might call uh, permissive. This is where there's a lot of love, but there's very little instruction and discipline. Just permissive. And then a fourth style is a balanced style, where there's plenty of love and plenty of instruction and discipline. Now, when we, when we hear those four styles of parenting, we all instinctively understand what the best form of parenting style might be, and that is where there's a balance of love and discipline and instruction. And so where there's that balance, obviously that's the best environment. But would you hazard a guess as to the next best style of parenting, either neglectful or authoritarian or permissive? The next best is a permissive style, where there is love but not much discipline and instruction. So where love is present, that's actually good, even if there's no discipline and instruction. The third best style, and I'll tell you why we know why these are best, is the neglectful style, and that is where there's, where there's no supervision at all. Child's not being loved, child's not being instructed. You just wind them up and turn them loose, and, and parents are AWOL. That's actually better than the worst parenting style, which is authoritarian which is where you have the absence of love, but you have plenty of rules, plenty of discipline, plenty of instruction. That's the worst kind of parenting. You know, it's interesting. Someone who's very anti-religious, anti-God, anti-Christianity, I mean, they're vehement in their anger toward religion. If you ever get to know a person like that well enough to ask them this question, you'll be interested to hear their answer. When you ask them, what kind of home did you grow up in? You know, because you hate God, and you hate religion, you hate anybody that's oriented that way. What kind of home did you grow up in? And more times than not, you will hear them describe to you 
that they grew up in a very religious home. A very narrow, restrictive, legalistic, religious environment. It's a curiosity. And the reason that folks grow angry and bitter toward God and toward religion is because all they got from their parents and from people that they knew were rules, and regulations, and discipline, and harshness. And they never got to see the heart of a person and experience the love that a person has for them. Now, the reason we know that these are the styles in this ranking, in this order, is because as studies have been done, we discover that children who actually live, grow up in a balanced Christian home uh, actually embrace the values that they were given in their youth and deal well with the figures of authority going down the road. So when they get to school, they get along. If they're in, in the public, they get along. If they're, if they're in society in general, they understand the rules, they get along. A person who grew up in a permissive, permissive home where there's plenty of love and no rules, they tend to carry the values of love right into their adulthood. They get along with authority figures, and this tends to be their way. Even children who grew up in neglectful homes where they didn't get either tend to do better carrying the values forward than those who grew up where there were lots of rules, lots of discipline in an authoritarian kind of home. Isn't that curious? You know, the Bible teaches this. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, Now these th three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. It appears that love covers a multitude of sins. It appears that love is the defining factor when, as a parent, you allow your child to feel your heart and to know your encouragement and affirmation and nurture. That is the most important factor in the development of a child. And so there's got to be love and discipline and instruction in balance. Number three, understand the child's personality and honor it. Understand a child's personality and honor it. Sooner the better. Now, let me just, uh, let me just make a confession to you. Uh, Beth and I raised two boys, and I have regrets. In fact, I have some deep regrets about my behavior as a parent from time to time especially with regard to our younger son, Isaac. I, uh, I did not appreciate or understand well his personality. And so my, my parenting of him was sometimes too harsh. It was too critical. It was too confrontational. And, and I didn't appreciate who he was in personality type and style. And so I, I have lots of regrets about that. Aaron, our oldest son, he, he was easy because in personality type, he's just like me. I know how to deal with me, so that's how I dealt with him. And, and that worked out fine. But Isaac was very, very different. And I didn't fully appreciate that. And so it's important that you learn your child's personality and, and how best to care for them, how to motivate them, how to discipline them in their personality type. And that takes some skill. You should know. You should know what your child's personality is. And if you don't know what it is, then, then get some instruments and, and figure it out. We can help you with that here. Uh, the school can help you with that. And there, there are folks who will help you discern best the personality type of your child. I mean, if you've got a dominant child on your hands and you're constantly confronting them, I mean, I can tell you what's going to happen. You're going to bang heads with that kid because she wants to dominate. And if you just get in her way all the time, she's just going to try to run over you. And there's going to be sparks flying all the time. You've got to kind of saddle up alongside of that dominant personality and, and move along. If, if that child is melancholy or, or, or conscientious in personality type and you're too confrontational with them, you'll damage them. You'll wound them. So you've got to, you've got to nuance how you approach them and care for them and nurture them. And so, again, understand the child's personality and honor it. Here's number four. Discover the child's bent, that is, his talents, her gifts, and actively support it. Discover the child's bent. Uh, that's what Proverbs 22.6 says, in, in, in effect, train up a child according to his or her bent. And, and again, this is the, the, the natural talents that God has given that, this child 
and also the spiritual gifts that God tends to give that complement that natural talent. So it's important to discover that. Uh, one of the worst mistakes that parents make is that when a son or a daughter is born, you immediately assume that they're going to become what you want them to be. You know, it's a boy, and, you know, the dad goes, ah, there's my athlete. You know, there he is. You know, there's my, there's my little superstar. He's going he's gonna to be great. I, I just know it. Well, maybe he will, maybe he won't. All depends on his bent, and it's right to catch that. Uh, you know, and so if they don't want to be part of the family business, that's got to be okay. It's not okay. This is a fourth-generation family business. Everybody joins the family business. That's what we do. That's who we are. Well, no, not necessarily. I have an acquaintance in another city, and their family owned this very successful business. But when he was growing up, he had a passion for medicine, and he wanted to be a doctor. And his, you know, his dad never gave his blessing and always challenged him. And this guy's become a surgeon. He's a leading surgeon in his, in his city where he lives. I mean, a prominent guy and very successful and, and you know, just a great, great career. But he has confessed to me that he goes to work every day with some lingering guilt and the reason for that is because his dad wouldn't give him the salute to become a physician, not joining the family business. Come on. It's, uh, it, it manifests itself in this category. Sometimes your children aren't as smart as you are. Maybe, maybe college isn't for them. Maybe they're, maybe they're mechanical. Maybe that little guy, he just likes to tear things apart and put them back together. He likes to work with his hands. He likes to be outside. Maybe, maybe he just needs to find a future that puts him outside using his hands to make a living because that's the way God has wired him. That's his bent. Maybe one of the questions that we need to ask is, as a parent, what are the one or two strengths, special gifts that your son or daughter has? Can you answer those questions? What are the one or two things that your son or daughter are really gifted at doing? If you don't know the answer to that, you need to figure that out. You need to do the internal business. And you, and you say, well, he just, he just needs to suck it up and, you know, get tougher. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. So you need to do some internal searching on that because your child isn't there to be what you want them to be. They're there to be what God wants them to be. Let me just remind you, those children do not belong to you. They are a gift from God, and they'll be returned to God. You okay with that? They just, we are stewards of children, not owners. We don't own our kids. We just steward them for a while. And so the best way to steward this gift of God is to figure out how God has wired them up and encourage that and affirm that. Uh, I think you get it. Here's number five. Too much is too much. Write that down, please. Too much is too much. For example, too much control over a child will cross their spirit, incite them to rebellion. The quickest way to not get what you want to see in your child is to guarantee it by, by, by over-controlling them. Uh, our son Aaron had a first girlfriend years ago, and he was, he was all in love and all that, and he was 16, and now he's old enough to date, according to our family rules. And So he was going to drive to Indianapolis, where this girl he had met on a mission trip lived, and so he drove over there expecting to have his first car date with his first, with his first girlfriend. And she was, she was there, and he drives to the family home, and he's ushered into the home and immediately taken by her father into his study, into the den in their home, where he spends the next three hours essentially getting the third degree and learn the family history in those three hours. Our daughter's mother and me, we got pregnant with her before we were married, and that's not going to happen to any of my five children. He came home, you know, four hours later, and he came into the house, and you could see he was stunned. <laughs> he just, he just kind of glazed over. So, wow, how'd it go? He said, uh, he said I don't know. I said, what do you mean? Didn't you go out on a date? He said, no, never left the house. <laughs> I said, well, what happened? 
Well, I said, I walked in, the father grabbed me, put him in his, put him in his office, shut the door, and for, for three hours, worked me over. I said, well, how did it all end? And he looked at me and he said, I think her mother likes me. <laughs> that was his summary. <laughs> yeah. Let me... I, listen, there's nothing wrong with dads being a bit protective. I think that's a good thing. But listen, there's a verse in the Bible that's specifically directed toward this experience. In Colossians 3.21, it says... Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. They'll become discouraged. If you over-control your kids to prevent them from becoming impure and immoral and out of control, you know what you're going to produce? If you over-control them, you're going to produce an impure, out-of-control, immoral kid. Too much is too much. Too much money. Too soon in a child's life is bad. Too much money, too soon. That pacify a child, uh, take from them their will to achieve. And this has been especially onerous in American culture among my generation. Baby boomers, the most prosperous generation in American history. And America is abundantly prosperous, incredibly prosperous. And it is so easy for us to give our children too much. Too much is too much. And this has become a real issue. And we are reaping the consequences of this, where we have now a generation, an emerging generation, half of whom don't seem to be able to figure it out. They don't know what they're going to do. They don't know where they're going to go to work. And some of these kids, you know, the failure to launch, you can't get rid of them. They're, you know, they're, it's 35, they're still living at home. They don't have meaningful work. And it's one of the reasons for, for this is because we never expected them to work. And never, you know, they, if they wrecked the car, we just paid to fix that. If they lost their job, that's no problem, we'll carry it for a while. We've been studying the American bald eagle just as an object lesson with, with a group of folks recently. And this one lesson, it's a fascinating study, but there's one lesson where, where the mother eagle will actually take this eaglet when it's time to leave the nest and push that eaglet out of the nest. And they've documented that sometimes, a hundred times a day, she will push that eaglet off the nest and the eaglet, you know, trying to get its wings and fly a little bit. And the, and the mother will swoop down and catch this eaglet and carry it back up to the perch. And many, many times until this eaglet finally realizes that, you know, I'm going to have to fly. And there are some eaglets who won't do it, and they will refuse to leave the nest. You know what the mother eagle does when they refuse to leave the nest? They disassemble the nest. Start piecing the nest apart, just pulling the nest apart until there's no nest. And then the mother just looks at the eaglet and goes, see ya. There's no nest. You're going to have to figure this out. Boy, there's some parents who could learn a lot from that. You've heard me say this dozens of times. I'll say it again. It's one of my favorite. It's, I love to get on this soapbox. Your late teenage children and your, especially your young adult children, listen, are you listening? Have a God-given right to their own poverty. They're going to have to figure it out. And if you're constantly propping them up with too much money, they won't figure it out. It's too easy. They have a God-given right to their own poverty. It's good for them. But they're struggling so much. They've got those two little babies. And they, sometimes they say they're hungry. Good. Because it makes them tough. It makes them resilient. It makes them ready. How else are they going to get ready? You went through that stuff. Yeah, but it was different back then. No, it's not. I know. We, we ate beans for four weeks one time. I know. And that was good for you, wasn't it? Yeah, looking back on that, those were formative years. There's stuff that happens now. We say, well, shoot, we went through that before. We can do that, that again. You, God builds the right stuff in us through those kinds of challenges. Too much is too much. Too much expectation can be too much. I hearken back. This is kind of an extreme example. George Brett, that's a name some of you older guys will remember. George Brett was a 
is a Hall of Fame baseball player, played for the Kansas City Royals. And George Brett is, is really the last guy who flirted with a 400 batting average uh, for a season. This was back in 1980. And George Brett that year uh, was, as I say, close to 400 all year. And no one since Ted Williams has batted four, 400. And he was very, very close. Now, George Brett has reported in a, in a, in a book that he wrote, autobiography, that his dad was a very high expectation dad. In fact, his favorite word to use with George growing up was higher. You can go higher. You can do better. You can go higher. And George Brett said that at, at the end of the last game of the 1980 baseball season where he was flirting with a batting average of 400, when the last game was played, he walked off the field. He had a batting average of 396. 396. And he said he was greeted by his dad in the dugout at the end of the game, and this is what his dad said to him, five more hits and you'd have made it. And you hear that and you go, come on, man. Too high of expectations is too much. Rather than making your children better, you can make them bitter. I remind you of Colossians 3 again. Fathers, do not embitter your children. They'll become discouraged. Yeah, that's right. Here's number six. Show a child what to believe by living it. Show a child what to believe by living it. Some of you, I'm referring to your old timers now a little bit. Some of you will remember this song. You can hear it on the oldie station now. A song written by Harry Chafin called Cats in the Cradle. Can you hear that tune? Cats in the Cradle on the Silver Moon, the Little Boy, Blue and the Man in the Moon. There's a, there's a reoccurring verse in that song that's haunting. And the whole song is about a father not giving the right attention to his son and the son reporting this experience through this song. And the son will, will summarize this experience with his father in the course of the song that repeats several times in the song, and it's simply this. I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And it just it grabs you. And the, and the real meaning of that song and the truth of the matter is that values are caught more than they're taught. I mean, we've heard that, and we, under, and we actually believe that, but, but do we live our lives in such a way that we know it's true? Because it's what you did behind closed doors. It's what you did when no one was looking. It's what you did when your values, ultimate values, are really put on display in the context of your family, that your child, your son, your daughter noticed. It's how you reacted in a very stressful situation. That's what your son, that's what your daughter learn about how to handle stressful situations by watching what you did. That's how they leave home. They look just like us. Love this note sent by an acquaintance writing about his dad. Listen to this. He said, my father's 73 and I still watch him. I'm still learning from him. He's become a shining example to me of how a man, no matter his age, can overcome anything in life when he partners with God. I want to be more than ever like my father. I want to have his heart and his character. I am motivated every day knowing my father is showing me the way and that my son is looking to me to do the same. I want my son to be as proud of me as I am even now of my dad. How good is that? That's it, isn't it? That's what you want. That's what you want to shoot for. So a child needs to be shown what to believe by, by living it. Number seven, a child can be wounded for a lifetime. A child can be wounded for a lifetime. There, there, is a, there is a false premise that exists in our compromised culture. And that false premise is that children are strong and tough and resilient. And even though our family is coming apart and fragmenting, that little sweetheart of mine, she's a rock. She's resilient. She just has the the, the strongest spirit through all of this, and even though we know it's a little bit hard for them, they're going to be just fine. No. No. 
No, 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 and big no. Children are not resilient. Children are vulnerable. Children are fragile. They may be putting a good face on you right now, for you right now, but all of that pain, all of those wounds, all of that disappointment, all of that confusion, that will come due in their lives. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Now, this isn't meant to incite any kind of guilt or shame for folks who have struggled in your family. I'm just submitting to you that your children may need more help than you think, especially if they've been through some stuff. There's something that a, a daughter and a son do no matter what family they grow up in. When they are small children, they look to their parents and particularly their father they look to their father as a hero. And what happens in their psychology is because they believe their dad is the best and the biggest and the strongest and the smartest and can do, that's Superman. He's my hero. It's hard for them to make sense when dad abandons them or when dad mistreats their mother or when, or when dad uh, abuses them because he gets so easily enraged or when he's abusive. So here, this, this incongruity that exists in the psychology of children when this happens is something that damages them. What God, the constant, and a child, the constant, want us to know as parents is that a child can be wounded and those wounds can last them for a lifetime. We've got to be sensitive to that. And so we can't be living a double life being over-controlling or abusive with anger or buying them off with too much this or that, it's just not going to work because we have children now that are emerging in our culture and we see it every day. We see it in the life of the church. We see it in our schools. We see it in our, in our counseling center. We see this all the time. In a world where, where these young people are angry, they're enraged, they're depressed, they're addicted, they're confused, they're living in pure pain, I was at Subway shop two days ago, and there was a little girl in there, and she, was, she, she had too much makeup on, and, she, and she's late teens, and she's working the Subway shop. And I was trying to find some way to encourage her and affirm her because as she was making my sandwich, I saw all these scars on her, both of her arms where she's been cutting herself. And, I, and I, so I just, I just found words to encourage her and bless her and build her without getting too personal with her, not even knowing her name. And, and society is, is full of kids who've been damaged. These kids can be wounded. We, need to, we just need to have our eyes wide open. We need to be aware of these things. Here's number eight. Adjust your leadership style to the child. Adjust your leadership style to the child. Now, there are three stages of parenting. And they all begin with the letter C. You put these kind of in the, on the side of your notes. It's not on your outline. One is when the children are young, you have to coach them. I mean, they don't know what's going on. You have to tell them. And this is where you go, this is right, this is wrong. This is right, this is wrong. This is wrong like all the time. You can't make it right. <laughs> so that's wrong. This is black, this is white. This is, these are the values that we embrace here, here at The Rock. And these are the things that we hold valuable here in our home. This is what we esteem. This is what we prize. This is what we place value on. And so when, when kids are young, you want to coach them. You want to give them all that stuff. You want to direct them. You want to protect them. You want to control them. You want to manage them because they're young. They don't know any better. And so you have to help them up to about age 13 or so. Then from age 13 to 18 or so, you're, you're not the coach anymore. You are now the cheerleader. You've instilled the values. You, you put the stuff in there. Now what you want to do is you want to keep them between the lines. You just, okay, here are the parameters. You just want to help them stay because hormones are happening. Adolescence is happening. Kids are going crazy. It's temporary insanity, 13 to 18. And, and so kids just need to be encouraged. They need to be affirmed. They do something right. You go, yes, that's right. They do something wrong. You go, mm, bring that back inside the line. And so you just cheerleading as you go. Aaron was about 12 years old. He was just 
moving into this phase and his hormones were kicking and he was getting big and strong and and young boys, what they do when they get to this stage is they, they develop into young bucks and, you know, they're looking for someone to butt heads with. That's what, that's what they do. And for boys, looking for a woman to dominate is what they do. So if they have a little sister at home, you know, she needs to be protected, you know, get her a helmet or something because he's coming after her. And if there are no sisters around, then mom becomes the target of this kind of intimidation one day, Aaron was 12, I drove home, I pulled in the parking lot at the house, and I saw Aaron, our oldest, physically having pushed his mother up against the front door on the front porch, just physically had moved her, I could, just, I could read the body language, I, I knew what was happening. He had, he had forced himself physically up against her, and I don't know what he was saying to her, but he was trying to intimidate his mother. And what's she going to do? Because she, now she's, she's at a disadvantage. All she's got is you wait till your father gets home because she can't do anything with him. So he's got her all pushed up against the door. And I immediately read it and I pulled up and stopped. He, he didn't even glance over his shoulder because he was, you know, temporarily insane. <clears throat> and I made eye contact with Beth. Beth just looked at me and she didn't utter a word. She just said, he needs, he needs help. <laughs> so I went over to him. You're going to think I'm a barbarian. I went over to him. I grabbed him by his, the front of his shirt. I dragged him back over to the car, and then I bent him over backwards over the hood of the car, and then I, put, I bent down, and I put my nose right on his nose. And I said, no one in the world treats my wife like that. No one, not you not anyone you know, not anyone in the world treats my wife like that, not in my presence. See, so I said, there's something you need to know. She was here long before you got here, and she'll be here long after you're gone. The only reason you get to live under this roof and eat my food is because, and sleep in my bed is because I'm a really nice guy. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be out on the street trying to figure it out. You're just passing through here, and in the meantime, you're going to be respectful to my woman, my wife. And, you know, he got it. He got the message. It was really helpful to him. I was, coach, I was coaching him right up. And it helped him. So they need a coach. Then they need a cheerleader, encouragement. And then after your children, after your children are, are out of your home and young adults, then they need a consultant. Coach to cheerleader to consultant. And this is, listen, this is where parents miss this. This is by invitation only. So you see, you see your young adult children parenting their children. You say, boy, you know, they need to do better with that. Or, or you know, he doesn't know how to keep, take care of his lawn. Or, you know, or she doesn't know how to bake a cake or whatever. The impulse is, hey, let me help you with that. You don't, obviously don't know what you're doing. Hmm. Don't do that. You consult your young adult children at their invitation. In the meantime, listen to me now. It's none of your business what's going on in their family. They're adults now. That's their family unit. They establish the boundaries, not you. So don't violate those. Well, I have a, I have a lot I could say about that. But I want you to get to thinking about that. About four years ago, Aaron reported to me, our oldest son, that he had gone to a conference in his local church that was entitled Letters from Dad. Letters from Dad. And he said there were about 360 men from his church who attended this conference, and it was all about the impact that fathers had on, on, their, on their sons. And one of the ways that fathers impact their sons is that at milestone moments in their lives, transition points, achievement points, that a dad will write the son a letter, letters from dad. And the man began in the first five minutes of this day-long conference by asking, how many of you 360 men here today have received at least one letter from your father, a letter of encouragement from your father? Aaron said six, six hands went up. Six, six men out of 360. And Aaron was one of them. Because I've written a handful of letters to both of our boys at these important moments. 
Here's the letter that I gave to Aaron when he was 18 and he was leaving for college. Aaron, I said, the night your mother came home to our apartment in Wilmore, Kentucky to announce your coming, God spoke to me. I was dazed, confused, mostly frightened by the prospects of being a father for the first time. We'd only been married for about a month. The seminary was new and frankly confusing to me. I prayed that God might change the circumstances. I prayed that somehow this cup might pass from me. Your mother was in the bathroom crying and I was kneeling at the bed, really discouraged and afraid. It was at that moment that God spoke. He first reassured me that everything would be okay, assured me that he was with your mother and me and that we would be useful to him in kingdom work. His main message, however, was about you. While I didn't hear an audible voice, I heard very, very clearly what the Lord said. And God spoke to me that night. He really did. He said, don't be afraid. You're going to have a son. He will be healthy and strong. He will bless your life and grow to be an excellent and productive man. He will be excellent in stature and character and useful in my hands. So trust me now, and you'll see my blessings poured out in your life and family. So I said, Aaron, from that moment to this, I've known you are going to be special, and indeed you are. God has been faithful to you and to all of us in your formative years. You are a product of the gift of God. His grace has been abundant in your life. And while I have been tempted to worry or be anxious about you, God's words to me have always given me peace and comfort. I've always held in my heart that you were a much better son than I ever deserved. Your mother deserved the very best, and that is what she got. I've always treasured you. From the first moments of your life, I was busting with pride. You continue to make me very proud. I am proud not only because of the marvelous accomplishments you've realized, but especially because of your love for God, devotion to right things, and strong character. I love you because you're you. It's also important for me to ask your forgiveness. There have been times when I failed you as a parent. There were times when I wasn't there for you. There were times when I was too harsh, too demanding, too controlling. Sometimes my expectations of you were unrealistic and unfair. I wasn't as tender and sensitive as I needed to be. Please forgive me. I'm relying on the verse that says, Love covers a multitude of sins. My hope is in knowing that my love for you has always been strong. And when you're blessed to be a parent, you can improve on my mistakes. I'm experiencing a large dose of grief right now considering your departure for college. I'll miss our special times together. It hurts me to know you won't be in the house day to day. But of course, all of this is my selfishness. Ultimately, what would make me really sad is if you didn't leave. It's time. You're ready. You have my blessing. God gave me grace for your coming. He'll give me grace in your going. God has great plans for you. He knew every one of your days before there was one of them. He has spoken that promise to me. I know you've heard it as well. So rely on that sense of destiny. God is ordering your steps. Place your trust in him. You will never be disappointed. Love and respect, Dad. Number nine, make some great memories with your child that will last them for a while. Make some great memories. My dad took me on a father-son fishing trip when I was a boy. It was formative. I've taken both of our boys and that sort of thing as well. It's important that you make memories, special trips, special occasions, special moments, special gifts, whatever it is that makes a memory for your children. Make them and make them so that they'll last a lifetime. Very important. Here's the last one, number 10. Love God. Love God and share, and share him with your child. Every human being who is born has an, an intuition, an instinct to know God. We're all wired that way. You've heard it said everyone has a God-shaped vacuum inside of them. Only God can fill it. It's actually true. God has put eternity in our hearts. He has made us to be in relationship with him. And that's the message of the gospel, isn't it? God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. He's made you for that relationship. So it shouldn't surprise us that children are inquisitive about God that they're interested about God, they're curious about God. And so it's right for us as parents to be ready to answer those questions and to place our children in, in, in an environment, in church culture that, that reinforces that instinct they have to, to be in relationship with God. And so love God and share God with your children. Can we just say that children are a great gift? They are. They are an enormous amount of work, and they are a great joy. It's very gratifying to raise children. Let me uh, conclude with this. 
Some of you remember uh, Irma Bombeck, a humorist, author. Um, she wrote this, this story, and I thought it was appropriate. She wrote, when Mike was three, he wanted a sandbox. His father said, well, there goes the yard. We'll have kids over here night and day, and they'll throw sand in the flower beds. Cats will make a mess in it. It'll kill the grass for sure. Mike's mother said, the grass will come back. When Mike was five, he wanted a jungle gym set with swings that would take his breath away and bars that would take him to the summit. His father said, good grief. I've seen those swing sets in backyards, and do you know what they look like? They look like mud holes in a pasture. Kids digging their gym shoes in the ground, it'll kill the grass. Mike's mother said, it'll come back. Between breaths, when Daddy was blowing up the plastic swimming pool, he warned, you know what they're going to do to this place? They're going to condemn it and use it for a missile site. I hope you know what they're doing. They'll track water everywhere. You'll have a million water fights. You won't be able to take out the garbage without stepping in mud up to your neck. When we take this thing out, we'll have the only brown lawn on the block. Mike's mother said, it'll come back. When Mike was 12, he volunteered his yard for a camp out. And as they hoisted the tents and drove up the spikes, his father stood in the window and observed, why don't they just put the grass seed out in cereal bowls for the birds and save myself the trouble of spreading it around? You know, for a fact that all those tents and all those big feet are going to trample down every single blade of grass, don't you? And don't bother to answer me. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say it'll come back. The basketball hoop on the side of the garage attracted more crowds than the Winter Olympics. And a small patch of lawn that started out with a barren spot the size of a garbage can lid soon grew to encompass the entire side yard. And just when it looked like the new seed might take root, the winter came and the sled runners beat it into ridges. Mike's father shook his head and said, I've never asked for much in this life, only a small patch of green grass. And his wife smiled and said, it'll come back. This fall, the lawn was beautiful. It was green and alive, and it rolled out like a sponge carpet along the drive where gym shoes had trod, along the garage where bicycles used to fall, and around the flower beds where little boys used to dig with teaspoons. But Mike's father never saw the yard. He anxiously looked beyond the yard and asked with a catch in his voice, he will come back, won't he? And that's what parenting's all about. Here for just a brief time and then quickly gone. But listen, if you're a parent, you have received life's greatest title. You are a dad. You are a mom. And you really matter in the world. So God bless us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these simple truths today that remind us of how important, how significant the role of parenting is. I pray for all of us today, folks who want to be parents, will be parents, those of us who are parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, significant others in the lives of these children. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, a heart of wisdom, to see the enormous value, potential that exists in every one of these children. And God, give us your wisdom to know how best to train them up in the way they should go so that when they're old, they'd not depart from it. We pray in Jesus' name. The people said, would you stand and sing?